everybody, and welcome back to a brand new year of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top news stories and analysis every single week. Today, I have my co-host Jessica with me, and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Dr. Joel Brown, a practicing GP, a budding health tech guru, all sorts going on for Dr. Joel Brown at the moment. Um, Nice and loud and famous on LinkedIn, all sorts, all sorts. Super excited for Joel to be here. So, uh, yeah, first of all, Joel, welcome. How are you doing, my friend? I'm really good, man. I just have to say that I've been super stoked about uh, joining you guys on today's podcast. Since I'm still kind of living the dream of Malta, I still haven't come down from the high of just being in this beautiful Mediterranean, uh, just in really interesting historical um you know, nation, and then just being at the, you know, at the at the conference that we, you know, it was just awesome. It was. I, I'm still just like, I, I just, I still can't just get my head around how great it was to be there and to meet you guys in in the flesh, and to yeah, just as I said, just put a finger on like the pulse of of the med tech community, um, you know, globally because there were so many of us from different parts of the world. So I'm good. It's been a happy new year indeed. Excellent. Yeah, I'm. Uh... I've got my my MedTech World Health Tech Media Coverage of the Year trophy sat next to me here that we collected at that at that conference. Nice. Um, but that pales into insignificance when you consider the win that was meeting Dr. Joel Brown in person. So um, that was that was my that was my and Somex's real win from that event. But it was no, on a serious note, it was it was awesome. It was a really good event. It was so nice to have everyone there, and and like obviously we had the stage, and so we were able yeah. to invite people like yourself and other people that we've been that we've been connecting with over over the whole year. And I think. Yeah, in-person events. That was an interesting one, wasn't it? At the, at the end of last year, that little sort of yeah. flurry of Giant Health and Malta mm. and Health, that one that was out in the US. And there was there was all these this like flurry of events and it really felt like the, the community was building again. And I know I felt that quite a lot with our SOMEX events that we've been with, with Google and um, just having that event sort of buzz and vibe and, and having people connect with each other mm. has been... It's been really nice. It's been really wonderful. And um, yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And I must say, you know, shout out to the organizers uh, of the MedTech event, um, Sigma. I think think they did a fantastic job. But, you know, I I will also, you know, not withhold um, what I think is, you know, uh, know, just acknowledgement of Summix, James, what you and Jessica are building and the way that you guys uh, played a massive role in in helping to foster that community, especially for the British contingent of the medtech community. Because for me, I live in a a part of uh, the UK that probably doesn't make the news very much. And it was really nice to just kind of feel this uh i don't live in london where it's you know everything's happening um and so it's just great to be able to be on that little platform that you guys created on you know at the event and and got a chance to meet some amazing people shout out to thanks man thanks man (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah we're looking forward to doing quite a lot of events next year aren't we jess yeah watch this space maybe there'll be one coming to somewhere near utah who knows if you're up for it, let's do it together. When you guys are ready to do the events, please, please, please just throw me an email. Shout shout me out because <laughs> I'm, I'm always willing to come now be part of it. You know it. All right. Shall we talk about some health tech, guys? What's been going on this week? 
Right, first story that we want to talk about today is the fact that, well, I say, is it a fact or is it a question that global collaboration is the answer to medtech and biotech's biggest challenges? This is an article by Aruni Sunil at Sifted. Joel, you've had a read of this. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought, like you said, the title, um, you know, is captivating. It's for some controversial. Um, and I read a particular paragraph uh, within the article that uh, to me just seemed really obvious. Like that there is, there's no debate there. Anyone who's worked in med tech, anyone who's had conversations with, uh, with people hiring in med tech, um, you know, that they said here, finding the right talent with a combination of scientific, technical and business skills can be a huge challenge for med tech and biotech startups. And uh, there was a 2021 report um, where 33,000 medtech companies in Europe, of which 95% um, are SMEs that employ fewer than 50 people. And then there's a further point about it's a big hurdle finding talent and finding expertise, you know, uh, you know that you can easily partner with across the sort of ecosystem of, um, you know, medtech. And, you know, when we talk about collaboration and, and finding ways to, to discover expertise and 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 talent uh, it's you know the nhs for instance and, and ways in which many clinicians work can feel very siloed um and so you know you want to you, you've got a great idea but you don't necessarily have direct access to the people in your circle that uh, might have the right scientific or technical or business skills to solve um, or, or to at least troubleshoot that idea to see, if it, is it feasible? Is it something that actually, um, you know, do I, do I, yeah, can, can I get this off the ground? Um, and so it, it makes sense to me that we live, we clearly live in a, in a much more, um, you know, a global world where you can find people faster online um, than, you know, obviously, necessarily would just you know by conventional methods like snail mail or walking around and hoping to bump into someone and so there is a sense that i do i, I feel it's it, it is obvious that if there was if there were better um you know made platforms that facilitated that means uh, to find the right talent um you know that that would be a no-brainer. Find the right talent wherever they happen to be in the world, wherever they happen to be in 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 your country. Of course, you've got issues like making sure that the talent they are contextualized. So, for instance, there is clear that you know regulation will differ in Europe versus in America. So, if you're wanting to talk to or find someone who has the right understanding of the uh, the, the scientific background that's needed or the, the business background that's needed, that it's contextualized, they're able to appreciate the nuances of, of the market that you're in. Um, and no plug, part of what I do uh, as a chief clinical officer of Brian Habu is that's what we that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to answer that problem. How do we, um, you know, how, how do we kind of create a space where if you want to find the right expert, the right uh, the right expertise that it's that it's straightforward that you have a sense of confidence that you know that the person is vetted that they are who they say they are or they have the, the, the credentials the experience to be able to you know, back that up because you know again if i want to find someone i could it would be great if i can go to one place slash platform 
that can uh, make that make that um, so much easier. So I think I think they're right. I think that's just one example to to say that global collaboration uh, will help some of the massive hurdles that I see that we still have in the medtech space to making the ideas that so many of us have a reality. Yeah, and I I also I talk about this quite a lot with with various different people, but I think there is this there's there's always been this dichotomy between big corporate organizations and small organizations and the big corporate organizations by and large have scalability they have resource and they do have talent for you know for for obvious reasons compared with your smaller startups smes who have the energy they have the agility they have those innovative ideas um and see a way to make that happen but ultimately what they need is the resources and and that talent but also then from the the kind of bigger corporate perspective they they need an agile partner to kind of to do that piece and so i think that's where there's really obvious kind of overlap and synergies and benefit to them working together because both sides get what they need it becomes a really synergistic relationship where everyone wins and you get to your outcome quicker and the people that you're trying to help and are in receipt of those benefits benefit much faster too yeah from my perspective i I think i think the it's (laughs) it's a funny one isn't it like is is collaboration the answer to solving problems is is essentially what you can drill this down into and it's kind of like well yes i like this article though because they they talk about some really specific problems and that and actually they they talk about what the, the, the what the collaboration is that they're that they're actually referring to so between Research institutions, large corporations, and startups. Could collaboration between those be the answer to things like data privacy, regulation hurdles, creating the right companies and talent with university spin outs and tech transfer? They talk about funding. So it's it's interesting to me that that how we started this podcast right we started this podcast by talking about the value of collaborating at an event for the different types of people that you meet for the different things that you end up talking about and i think it can it probably resonates with most people listening to this that when you do go to those events and you go to the right ones you can feel incredibly inspired and incredibly energized because you've spoken to people from different disciplines that have given you a different perspective on things And it really does strike me that when you talk about big problems that we have in health tech, like regulatory hurdles, CE marking, UK CA mark, all of these these things that are going to be so difficult, that it, it not only is important, but like this article likes to refer to here, it is the answer. It's imperative that actually whose responsibility is this? Well, it's a bit of everyone's responsibility and it's actually the responsibility of everyone to come together, to form the right ideas, to work together, to all pull in the same direction so that we can rise the tide for everyone without that competitive feeling. So I think, yeah, in terms of collaboration and and community and the power that that has to solve problems, I think it is undeniable and I think, yeah, to 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 your point, Joel, about what we've been trying to do as well, like that 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 is just so fundamental to to what I think 
needs to happen in health tech because I think as a, as a space matures and as a space grows, there are these moments where in order to unlock the next phase or the next stage of this, something different needs to happen. And it kind of feels like that, particularly, I mean, I'm going to bring up again, this regulatory thing, you know, pulling out of the EU and all of those bodies that were going to help us regulate <laughs> through like MDI, MDD, whatever, like all of a sudden that becomes incredibly difficult. So how on earth do you solve that problem by just going like, oh, we'll just stick our own up and we've got our own bodies that can certify and, and there's just going to be a two to five year waiting list. You're like, well, is that okay? Like, surely something else needs to happen here. Nobody can solve that in isolation. So I think, yes, it is, is global collaboration the answer to, to big challenges? Yes. Um, is, is, is going out on our own perhaps not the right thing to have done to solve these problems? Well, absolutely. Um, are we going to need to really pull together with different different players globally to, to figure out how we solve these? Well, again, absolutely. I, th I think it's absolutely imperative. Is, is Europe going to get ahead of where we are, perhaps? Um, I think there's, there's a lot of policy stuff that needs to be done to, uh, to, to help along with all of these things. So, yeah, really interesting article in Sifted for anyone that wants to read that. Um, yeah, you can grab that in Pigeon this week. So on to our next story this week. VentureBeat have published six healthcare AI predictions for 2023. I tend to stay away from predictions because they are rarely correct. Um, however, uh, VentureBeat have had a go. Uh, so Jess, you've had a read of this. What do you think? Yeah, so this article starts by saying that in 2022, healthcare AI dropped to its lowest level since the third quarter of 2020. Not a huge period of time, but it, it seems like the funding for these kinds of things is reducing. Um, we know that funding's reducing across the board, but it's interesting to perhaps understand what, what that means, I guess, in the context of these predictions. Um, however, what they have said is for number one, personalized healthcare will be an ever greater focus, rightly so, I think. Um, legislation and regulation around healthcare AI will improve. I think that links back to what you were just saying there, James. There's a lot of ground that needs to be covered um, and still a long way to go before we solve a lot of these challenges in medtech more broadly, but very much in, in healthcare AI. Um, again, linking to the above, there'll be more efforts to tackle AI bias. We know that that's a really huge problem. Um, and the more we use AI, the greater problem it's likely to become. Therefore, it's really imperative that we tackle it and we tackle it soon. And number four, wider, wider range of applications in healthcare, likely because people become more confident with AI, how it works, use in its day-to-day -day life. So it, it would make sense that we're going to be exploring different ways and a wider number of places where we can perhaps use it and benefit from it. Um, number five is about a closer working relationship between humans and AI. And finally, number six is about automation. Uh, and a couple of these stuck out to me more than others. As I said, I think the regulation point is really critically important. And I think regulation is not built for something that is constantly evolving as we know healthcare AI is and 
AI bias is very much wrapped into that. And so I think both of those have to happen in parallel and have to be part of the same thing. And then where we come on to talk about this idea of a a closer working relationship between humans and AI, I think there's a lot of conversation about how AI technology is going to replace humans and replace people. And to an extent, you know, yes, rightly so, but within context. And I think it's important to understand that that where AI and technology has a role to play is to to take away the burden, the admin, the monotonous task that that can be easily replaced. But I think it's so important to say that actually healthcare specifically, probably more so than any other industry, there's going to be you you just can't have healthcare without a human touch. There's going to be an increasingly, I think, important role to play of person-to-person care and that human touch element that I I don't ever see there being a day where that becomes totally removed. And actually, what this has the capability to do is emancipate healthcare professionals and people working in healthcare systems to actually be able to do the jobs that they signed up to do, to, to relieve that burden and to give them more balance. And as we often talk about as well, operating at the top of their license to do what they're really trained to do. So I think there's real opportunity there and real potential to solve some of the real issues and even crises that that we're seeing in the NHS and and other healthcare systems around the world. Um, And again, linked to that is this piece about automation, like what in-health systems can be automated? And there are things that can be very safely automated that again, reduce that burden. Um, And where we're having, you know, challenges with hiring people and retention of staff and there are gaps you know automating what can be automated actually means that it creates more time to be able to go and deliver care but also when you think about biotech for instance and coming back to that idea of personalized medicine and that becoming ever more important we know that one of the barriers to personalized medicine is in fact often the cost of it Um, and that is likely because so many of those processes involved in personalized medicine are so highly manual. So it's requiring very highly skilled people to be involved from the end-to-end process. But actually, there are elements of that that can be automated. And therefore, by bringing in that level of automation, it drives down the cost of personalized medicine and therefore increases access. And that means that more people can get better quicker and have a better quality of life. So there's a lot in here. Um, Those are some of my favorite parts. Um, but Joel, you know, yeah. from, from your perspective as a, a, a practicing clinician, what do you think? Like, how do you think that AI is perhaps going to play increasingly more into your practice, um, in particular, um, and how important do you think some of these, some of these elements and predictions are going to be yeah. in 2023 for, for you? Yeah, no, thanks for mentioning that. One word that stood out to me in what you said, you used the term emancipating clinicians and i i just love the sound of that because i mean one of my favorite um uh, artists is uh you know bob marley and he had a song um and one of the lyrics famous lyrics is emancipate yourself from mental slavery and there's a sense in which so many clinicians are kind of bought into this 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 they kind of um you know the the, the labor of doing kind of a lot of stuff that we've just called this is just part of the job and we there's a sense in which we feel very gridlocked and locked into and committed to um and, and feel like we we can't somehow be liberated from having to to do um to do so much um so much of this stuff 
You know what I mean? It's like going back to the days of being an FY1 or an FY2 on the wards and walking around with this piece of paper that you have to write down these uh, these jobs and these tick boxes and and, and everything. The, the whole process, there's, there's so much, you know, paperwork. Uh, there's so much... Um, there's so much like stuff that you do and you kind of look back and you just go, surely the technology existed, preceded like 10, 15 years. And you're like, you know, that, that could make a lot of that so much more efficient. And, and, you know, it's, and you end, you'd actually end up being able to do more patient care and less of the kind of tedious, monotonous uh, stuff, you know? And I mean, the same article you you just referenced, Jess, it said, you know, an analysis done by McKinsey suggested that AI-enabled personal assistants can automate 50 to 75% of manual tasks, boosting efficiency, reducing costs, to focus on complex cases and actual care delivery and coordination. I'm a GP. I can't tell you how much time is wasted on... on I was going to say, it's no believable, one. isn't it? Like, it's believable. Yeah, it, it, it is. And and we... and But whether it's fear, you know, you touched earlier about the sense of trepidation that some feel about AI, you know, encroaching on jobs or whatever. Like, there, there are things that once you're able to, you know... Because, for instance, a lot of the admin that we would love to be able to just pass to somebody else in the administrative team, they've got a lot on their plate that they're doing. There are more legitimate things that they can do with their time administratively administratively as well. So it's not to say that I see any imminent impending sort of threats on, on admin staff at large if we have we if we harness the technology of, of AI to 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 help with with so much. And I've seen some fascinating applications helping with waiting lists and and all sorts that there there are really um immediate applications of artificial intelligence that would help us deal with the pressing um, concerns around demand for our services and helping us to, uh, you know, to, to organize and, and even triage how we uh, approach, uh, you know, patients and, and prioritize patients best that artificial intelligence can assist. That's not to say that we shouldn't have uh, a sense of, you know, just wisdom and being judicious and careful about about the tech, you know, about any kind of technology. Because I do believe that technology is a tool, and we need to use that tool carefully. You know, if you treat everything like, um, you know, a, a nail, and just you know, and just think that you're just going to bang it, that that's that's a way you guarantee you're not you're not going to you're not going to do well. So you've got to think about, well, what is the specific task that you want to achieve and how can, um, you know, responsible artificial intelligence uh, with, with, with human oversight uh, assist in that regard to be able to, as I said, ultimately, uh, we're talking here about boosting efficiency, reducing costs. It's so, it's super clear that the NHS at the moment has with the money that we already receive, there is there is wastage. There are, there are things that you know we could all just look at and go, this is not the best use of the of the funds here. There's a much more efficient way. So I think while yes, there can be, I think we should and hopefully we can find ways of getting more investment in our healthcare systems. But another question that I think AI can can really help us to address is how do we uh, how how do we better utilize the resources 
both the time resource um, and the financial resources that we have. And can AI be a part of that solution? I'm excited about their prediction because I think if we don't get this right and use AI in the way that we can, and we just continually drag our feet about it, I think we just, I think it's insanity, if I'm allowed to say that in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also to just keep talking about it without any action. And I, and I think the, the, the thing for me here is we are existing in a week where ChatGPT has, has been launched incredibly recently. And I think f- since I was a medical student, I've been frustrated perpetually at listening to you, you know the audit cycle joel you know that like you've got to do audits which yeah. is basically just finding a way to talk yeah. about a problem and they present the audit yeah. an audit meeting where they talk about a problem and they talk about a problem again and then mm-hmm. other people talk about that same problem and you'll you'll get into a real like really good echo chamber about talking about the problem because you're all really aware of the problem and there's four different ways to define the problem and there's all these different things the problem causes and there's that thing of closing the loop, isn't there? Closing the loop. Whoever closes the loop. Whoever, I wanted to do it. They wouldn't let me do it in a hospital that I worked in. I was going to audit how many audits actually had the loop closed. Um, and they wouldn't let me do it because it was zero. Or it was, it was very close to zero. Because everyone, it's easy. It's easy to talk about the problem. And it's easy to talk about the theory of what the solution might be. It's easy to do that. And I think... Yeah. It's good, though. I think the first step in order to, you know, you think about uh, this 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 medical utopia where AI is imperceptively solving problems for clinicians that emancipates them from the admin and from the complex processing to then make patient care better. If we do think about that, great. And I, th- but I think talking about it is is a first step. Making people comfortable. To your point about yeah. people being uncomfortable by this, uh, made uncomfortable by this. I think it is important to spread knowledge about it first. Yeah. But then practically, yeah. what is actually happening now? There are there are companies doing it in pathology and in AI, in, sorry, in radiology, and like it, it is starting to come through now. Mm. What I do think is going to be useful at the intersection of that knowledge bit of what AI can do versus let's actually get this into healthcare is there will be clinicians that have been messing around with chat GPT. And for me, who's been in tech for quite a while, I've had my mind expanded or blown by the power of this thing. It has been like incredible. I don't know if you used it, Joel, or if if you if if you if you've seen this thing come to life re- come come to life recently. Yeah. But it, but it is it, it is gen it is genuinely a moment where I've gone holy heck! Like th- this is the power of what artificial intelligence can actually do. I can actually feed it some information or ask it to ask it to think in a certain way. I can say act as a cardiologist and give the following person advice hi i'm x weight and and i can't move and 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 it will it will pretend it's a cardiologist and give advice now i'm not saying that it's going to be completely correct or actionable medical advice but but and it's again it's easy to say that oh is that is that correct is that based on latest evidence you can actually ask it can you evidence that and like give me the references you can do that and now to jess's point about this is this is ultimately an end game of humans working with technology because the power is where a human 
is guiding. And we've seen this in ChatGPT because now the the phase two of, of, oh, I'm super excited, that's phase one. Phase two is now, now look at the state of what this can do when you give it the right prompts. This is the phase we're in now of ChatGPT. So all the content that I'm seeing about ChatGPT now is these are the best prompts to use. Act like this, use this theory and tell me what you think of this. Like there's all of this stuff now going on, which is, getting it's getting extra value and more specific and niched value so you're seeing humans and technology now working together and and again going back to one of your points joel about that you don't see this being a case of admin staff being deleted permanently as soon as this you know magical ai comes in yeah it's not because actually Mm. the, the the business model has been built on the staff that are there this is a tool that can allow for more efficiency and actually if you fix your margin you can spend all of that extra resource now that you're getting and and margin on a this to bring it in and what are you going to do with the extra made by this well you can do lots of different things to increase quality and actually this is just a really interesting like example for me of of on a micro level with ChatGPT, these principles that I think can apply to healthcare AI more broadly, which is you're seeing very directly how the human touch with AI is how you get to the actual value. And people shouldn't be afraid that it's going to change their or take their jobs. It's going to change them. And I think that's incredibly positive because I've I've started to, I, I, it's been relatively abstract for me. I'm not going to lie, like AI coming in and what it can do in radiology and what it's done in pathology. And I know that the companies like Ibex and others, like I, I know what they do. I've spoken to them on the podcast. Like I, it's never been, I've never been able to hold it in my hand. It's never been at the end of my key, at my fingers on a keyboard, but it has been here and I've seen it and I feel it now. And I, I'm energized by that because I can, I, I'm starting to be able to plot what this actually means for healthcare and health tech, um, because I can extrapolate what I'm literally seeing with ChatGPT to what must now actually be happening when you put those microscope slides or those pathology bits and bobs into the thing to do the thing. Like I can, I'm starting to piece that together now. Um, a long rambling rant about AI that, but I, I, <laughs> I don't know if any of that was useful, whether I got to a conclusion or even if I finished where I was meant to when I started there, I don't, I don't know where I got to, but um, those are my thoughts on AI and where we are now. And they are incomplete and they are, they are somewhat confused, but they are excited. I think we just got summer rude because that was awesome because James yeah, you, you're able to just, you have that passion, you grab a point. And then what you said at the end, I think is like a tweet. Like when you said the human touch of AI is where we'll find its value or something like that. Like you, you've got a, that's a golden nugget there um, that, I, that just really touched me when you said it. And, and I think it's, it's, it's right. As we, as we see the way that AI is an extension of, of what we are, capable of it i mean it's called artificial intelligence because it is essentially trying to mimic human intelligence and then being you know uh, enabled or extrapolated by the by the kind of speed of the capacity of of what computers can do and so it it, it really is a a, a tool a, an expansion of ourselves but to the degree that it, it can you know as you said we recognize that it is it is a that human touch that that makes it that makes it special. Um, the other thing I thought when you said um, whenever whenever there's a moment where we think oh we're blown away by some technology why don't we just coin a phrase and we just go holy pigeon makes sense. I love it. I love it. <laughs>
The next story by The Spectator, quite simply, this title, We Need to Stop Junior Doctors Leaving the NHS. Um, and written this week or last week, so obviously very recent. It's it's a story that, poor, it's just gaining momentum, isn't it, this? Um, they're doing more surveys, they're doing more studies. 65% of, of doctors, I think it was, that are looking to leave, like, or have looked or something along those lines. Uh, certainly, anecdotally, my LinkedIn inbox is getting more and more and more full of people looking for other opportunities. Um, I was actually at dinner last night with uh, one of my friends from medical school who works out in Sydney, and he's had 10 new UK doctors start in his one A&E department in one intake in one August. Um, people are looking to leave this country, not even necessarily a profession, looking to move to Oz, um, a place where if you're in the medical field, famously, in inverted commas, they treat you better. Yeah, interesting this, quite somber this, Joel. Um, how do you feel about all of this stuff going on at the moment? Yeah, as you said, I think it is sobering. It is the kind of um, phenomenon that gets politicized really easily. And we often then miss the nuance. These are people that are committed. Most doctors went to medical school, put up with pretty hard, you know, exams, um, uncertainty about moving to different parts of the country to get their training and, you know, qualified with a sense of pride about, you know, the UK, the opportunity to work in the NHS, the sense of wanting to commit to that, uh, to give a career to that, to look forward to, to that. And then we have had some of the most difficult times uh, in the NHS throughout the pandemic. Um, you know, some, some people have really been pushed to the brink um, just with the increased demand um, there have been frustrations around pay uh, and junior doctors um, being concerned that their pay essentially um, hasn't risen to the level um, of inflation. So obviously there's been a, a net dilution of what their what their pay is, and 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 these are all legitimate concerns. And and when and when we think about okay, so people. Um, you know, the, these doctors and, and, and other healthcare workers who are thinking with where things are at, at the moment, I just don't know if I can, I can stay anymore. It's on one hand, it's easy to demonize them and go, oh, you're a sellout. Oh, you, you know, you don't believe uh, in, in the, in, in the NHS. That, that's, that's, an, that's just too lazy. Um, and it's not the right analysis, really. And I think, as I said, it's not nuanced enough. And at the same time, um, you know, is is there value in in saying, hey, actually, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's horrible at times. Yes, I don't feel satisfied. I, I also get why some people will will feel compelled to remain. Um, I'm still working in the NHS as a GP, and I still feel um, you know, committed to do that. But one thing I will say in all of this is that ultimately we have to be careful that we don't allow ideology and a, and a strong sense of ideological 
ideological commitment mm. to prevent us from seeing what the reality is. Like, actually, okay, we, we also need to be pragmatic. And, and the thing about um, the, the way that business works is that people will only remain employed in a particular business, one, if they can see the clear vision of that business, what it hopes to achieve. They feel valued as a part of that operation, and they feel like the investment of their value will yield a return. And I think that if people feel disillusioned on any of those fronts, they are going to they are going to decide with their feet. They will they will leave if they don't feel valued. If they don't feel as a clear vision and, and and the leadership is competent, they will move on. And and that is going to happen. And and of course, it's sad to see the um, the fallout of that, especially as someone uh, any many of us do care about the NHS, care about what it stands for. There's a sense in which yes, there is this ideal that we want to have a healthcare service that is free to access for the population. Um, and I have personally benefited from having, you know, the NHS. I've had operations, multiple, that I would not have been able to afford even as a medical doctor if I had to pay out of pocket. So I appreciate it both from personal experience as well as for the many patients that receive care on an ongoing basis. And it would be, you know, well, I think, okay, again, it's easy to just think about the only of the main opposite example of a healthcare system is is in America, but you know, I think most of us will probably know people who've had health um, issues, and unfortunately, that's led to bankruptcy because they're you know they've just not been able to afford healthcare. And again, I, it's so easy to kind of like oversimplify what's going on here, different systems. So I, that that just that's an important caveat there, as I described the American system. I just think yes, we have a problem. Yes, there is clearly grave disillusionment the potential solutions and i love what james said we need to be we need to be willing to talk about solutions we can't just belabor the problem and just you know and, and think somehow by just auditing it and talking about it is going to ultimately lead to um some kind of satisfactory resolution but i think in in a, in a situation like this it, it is important to understand uh, the, the, the problem in a nuanced way, to recognize that there are people here who are at their heart of hearts, um, you know, I think love this country, love the NHS, but feel that, that there's been year upon year of just disillusionment, frustration, and ultimately feel like they have to make a decision that's right for themselves, their career, their mental health, their families. I want to ask you about... Um perhaps a bit of your journey with this as well, because I think part of this, or to try and essentially summarize this, and this article talks a lot about pay, but I think it's an overall deal. I think it's a rough overall deal, and it can feel like a rough overall deal when you are working those hours, both volume and um where they are in the in the 24 and what you're expected to do in any given 24 48 72 hour period of swapping your own circadian rhythm as if it were that easy there's this strangeness there and we've all had any rotations that that make us do that and throw us off and mental health issues not least how stressful the job actually is and obviously then the the, the pay that comes along with it and I suppose part of that the other opportunity that you could have had for you and your life 
had you have pursued a different path, even if you are looking to make similar impact in health, it can be done different ways and all these different things. So it can feel like a rough overall deal and, and, and perhaps no more acutely than in training. And you know, that, that part of training that's where you step up to the next bit and you're the lowest of that new ladder. And, you know, I can remember going onto the SHO rotor as an F2 and, the impact that has and the first time you're doing nights and the first time that you're doing many of these procedures, the first time you're treating SVT, the first time you're treating this, the first, like it, that, that there's a lot, there's a lot at, at that junction. And then as potentially as a core trainee, as potentially a, a junior registrar and your you first, first time you do first time you do med reg on call, goodness me. Like the, the, there's all the, there's all these parts of the job that are actually really stressful too, you know? And I'm interested in, in, in your journey of that, Joel, and like what you've ended up doing, because in part, this is, in part, this is that side of the deal. But then there's also this, this nagging potential feeling of I've got other interests, I've got other things that make me who I am. And I don't have time for those, because this is a vocation, it's a life, it's not just a job. And, and there's that struggle as well of, of like, I can remember, I gave up music entirely. Because I was like, I can't do that because that music's not serious enough. I've got to be super serious now that I'm a doctor, and I lost this massive creative part of myself that I was, I was, I was rubbish after that for, for personally for my friends and all the rest of it because I, I had this vision of what I should be doing. Like it, I didn't feel like it. Mattered. So, and that's my fault, right? I could have easily mm. just kept going with it, but for whatever reason, I thought I had to do blah blah blah. And then later in my life, I realised I've, I've picked up all my other hobbies and then built a career around it with also medicine and joined it all. So that's been my journey through it. But I'm interested in yours here because this is still this is this is this is a really, as you say, nuanced topic about finding. I mean, we talk, you and I have talked about ikigai and 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 that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's not just one answer here. One answer is addressing that deal. But one answer is also give them time off to actually pursue everything else they want. And are there other alternative careers? HE's got a tough task here, right? But I don't know. What's what's your reflection on what I've just said there? And what's what's been your journey to finding yeah. contentment with the deal and your life? Yeah, yeah. P- powerful reflections. Um, you know, for me, I, I could certainly look back at when I qualified as a you know, a junior doctor, bright-eyed, um, wet behind the ears, whatever, just, you know, pretty naive. But I just, you know, joined the ranks and thought, okay, yeah, noble profession, I've worked hard. Yes, I know it's going to be tough, but it's going to be worth it. And there were definitely moments where I, similarly to you, had to make sacrifices. Uh, we we have so much in common there, James. Musically, I kind of like abandoned much, much of my interests um, during during that season as well. Just felt like I just you know th- th- this demanded all of me. Um, you know, medicine mm-hmm. and um, and some of the shifts that I worked certainly um, at, at times I, I did feel like, what on earth am I really do, doing? Like, am I in over my head here? I mean, I, you know, I had a lot of stuff that I had to battle internally as well, that kind of imposter syndrome and stuff. But I think for me, I, as much as the frustration was there in terms of feeling like this, this calling or this vocation demands so much of me and and seems like I have to sacrifice so much of you know other things that I'd like I'd like to do I I also had in mind that 
at some point I want to I want to be able to um, to steer the ship according to, and, and develop a career that that was going to draw on on more than just my you know clinical abilities or my clinical skills. I mean the things that I learned to do as an FY one that I completely forgotten now. I mean it was great. I felt amazing when I was doing you know um, uh, you know sort of uh, d- doing doing lines uh, acidic drains. <laughs> you give me the, you gave me that equipment now. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to do that, obviously. And so there, there are skills that are really useful to 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 learn at that season that it served the purpose and function. But we can't get too sucked into thinking, okay, a particular set of skills that you you acquire ultimately pigeonholes, um, you know, who you are or what you're trying to do. You've got to have some kind of deeper sense of purpose that that guides you. And I knew, for instance, for me, the creative aspect of me was a really important manifestation of of who I am, my values, what I feel I'm supposed to be doing here in the world. So even if I had to sacrifice it for a season because there were tough exams and tough nights to get through, I, I, there was this there's this underlying underpinning sense that that's that's core to, to to who I am. I feel like I'm also a you know a person that, that that believes that my part of my role to play in the world is is to help to heal, to bring healing, and that's not just limited to to, to medical. I use my creative arts mm-hmm. in a similar context, oftentimes used in a, in a in a spiritual context. But but nonetheless, there is this sense. Okay, how do I at some point get the opportunity, get the clarity to think about my the meaning and purpose of my life and what I do flowing from that. So if doctors are in this, you know, are in this place where they feel like actually I have, I know I want to, part of why I came into medicine is because I am committed to making a difference in the world, especially as it relates to people's health. But if I'm in a system where I feel like I'm just a cog in a wheel I'm not really feeling valued. I'm not feeling like I'm getting the opportunities to to develop my skill set and, and in a more broader sense, and not just kind of feeling like I'm just, you know, on a on a kind of a, a roller coaster. And I, you know, the, the, I understand that the need that needs to be addressed is how do we get these doctors, uh, these other healthcare workers that feel disillusioned, a chance to be able to take a step back and think about their skills uh, as as they serve their deeper purpose. So for me, becoming a GP was one of the ways that I I recognized that I felt career-wise it would lend itself to give me a chance to be able to still pull on the, the, the medical skills, the diagnostic skills, but it would also give me a chance to build relationships with people. I'm very much a personable, you know, I like having these conversations, being able to follow people up. But then also, you know, interestingly, the, the idea of being able to use tech and and see the value of tech and have these conversations that can help people to open their minds to um, ways to collaborate and 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 use technology um, to to better serve humanity, both uh, you know especially in, in the healthcare region. Again, it's because I know I want to help people. I can leverage my clinical understandings in a broader in a broader way uh, in that sense. So I knew, for instance, working less than full time would be a good way. And so, to really long answer to your question is that. 
I've met, I've been mm. able to deal with a hard on call day. Tuesday this week was rough, left work at like 7.30, felt super tired and got home. And then I, I knew, you know, I was looking forward to the fact that I was having this conversation with you on Friday, uh, you know, having other conversations with the other things I'm doing, picked up my guitar and started writing a song that, you know, to convey some of that, you know, my desires for, you know, what I want to see in the world. And I view and use my life and, and I invest my life in the things that are rewarding to me, and it helps me to get through when when times are difficult. That's a lovely answer, man. And I, I think, yeah, there's a lot that, yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot that resonates there. I think, you know, I invest I invest my life in blah blah, and it's true. Like you invest your time, your energy, and that is you investing your life for the things that reward you. I think that is important. Um, yeah, and it is more than just getting that deal right for doctors because you give them a 20% pay rise like mm. fine okay but does that solve the bit of giving them the opportunity to invest their life in the things that reward them I'm not sure it does and not that it puts you back at square one of course it doesn't it increases that it makes the deal better but have you got fulfilled doctors that have the time to apply what are extremely good intentions to what can make the healthcare system better further, be that through technology yeah. and working with startups or be that just writing a song that actually helps 10 others when they play it in the mess the next day. You don't know, do you? Um, but I think it's definitely part of it. And I think it's definitely the other side of that conversation. All right, there's one more story I want to talk about today, very briefly, very briefly, um, because taking the mic, I'll call it, to introduce this, micturation, I believe, is an old school term for urinating. Um, I believe that joke makes it into pigeons somewhere, um, that we're taking the mic with this story. But yeah, a urine analysis, this is always going to happen, right? This has been in films for like over a decade. Uh Urine analysis device that sits in your toilet bowl. Uh, Withings, it looks like the company's called. The device is called U-Scan. It sits in your toilet bowl. It assesses specific biomarkers found in urine. My general comment on this is, why not? Like, why not? Analyzing biomarkers help you diagnose diabetes, chronic kidney disease. It says here, kidney stones, urine, urinary tract infections, UTIs. Like, yeah, of course. Like, why not? They're going to do, they've got a commercial model for B2B. They've got, oh, like, you know, beta healthcare, however you, wherever you are in the world, but they've got their consumer model as well. But yeah, sort of why not? Um, pretty pricey, 500 quid, $500. Um, subscription on top of that, 30 quid a month. That gives you cartridge refills because what it does, you urinate on it and it, and it, um, fills this little cartridge and it'll do all the usual, your pH, your ketones, your albumin, creatinine, all that sort of stuff, your UNEs, the yellow bottle um, when I was an F1. Um, so yeah, do you know what? Why the heck not? It's um, <laughs> just the extension of of uh, of every film that I've watched where this has been in it, to be honest. And I know that people look at often star trek and star wars and they think like how could you make that reality and then it's interesting where our ideas come from isn't it and you end up with a device that is mimicked by there or I think someone came up with like a teleportation theory based on like a star trek thing um that i was listening to brian cox talk about the other day but anyway um 
yeah, as I say, why the heck not? There is, though, something that I want to actually bring up in here. And Jess, I think this might be relevant to um, your interest and you might have a good opinion on this. Um, I might be reading too much into this, but it says in a paragraph, sort of six, five, six paragraphs down, it says, for the consumer market, Withings will sell a U-scan, their device, with an analysis cartridge for women's monthly cycle tracking and a U-scan with a cartridge for nutrition and hydration. The phrase women's, month, women's monthly cycle tracking. Now, in an article that's about a health tech device, it's a healthcare-based article, should we be better at saying menstrual or saying period or saying a word that isn't monthly cycle? Or am I perhaps reading too much into that with my biases as a clinician? So it is about your menstrual cycle. So yes, however, it's not just about your period because don't forget you have this hormonal cycle that is there for however many days of your cycle you have. And therefore, the horm- your hormones change every day. And that is also excreted out through your urine. So you can therefore track your hormones through your urine. So it is about your monthly cycle. However, it's not accurate because we, yes, technically you get a period every month. However, for some people, that's 21 days. For some people, that's 32. Um, mm. Obviously, they, those are the parameters of what is deemed to be, you know, okay. Um, outside of that, maybe speak to a GP. Chill. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I do I do think that yes, we should be better at using the right terminology. I can see why they've done it here because it is about more than just the phase where you are mm. losing blood, mm. um, where you're mm. bleeding. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm sure, particularly perhaps for people who are trying to conceive or have uh, a yet undiagnosed condition. Um, but are experiencing lots of other symptoms, like perhaps undiagnosed endometriosis, having that kind of hormonal data, it could be very helpful. Uh, I think if you're able to then go to your doctor and say, this is what I'm seeing with the wearable that, you're not Mm. wearing it, your toilet is wearing it, but you know, the device (laughs) that is in my toilet. Um, (laughs) You don't want to walk around with a bracelet on Wii. Well, we'll get into Um, into that's a new tagline for them. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say as a final note, though, is um, I think Withings, it stands a good chance of doing very well with this. They are a very well-established wearables company. I have a Withings scale, which extracts lots of data. And I know that there's a lot of criticism over the accuracy of that kind of data and that kind of thing. But I, I think, the, for example, the user experience on that app is really very good. Um it works in a similar way to Flow. I think it actually um, integrates with the Flow app um, and provides a really nice user experience and customer experience is what I would say. And I'm not someone who right now is, uh, you know, I want to be tracking my hormones for fertility reasons or because I perhaps think I might have an undiagnosed condition. I think that's where this could really kind of pay back. I don't know how useful having all that extra data around my hormones for me right now would be at the moment, apart from another data point to be looking at and then obsessing over. Um, But I do think as a company, they're well-placed to be doing this. Um, And I know that there's some, they're a competitor with Fitbit, they have a smartwatch and that kind of thing. So they 
they're clearly expanding out their range of products and moving clearly very, very heavily weighted into wellness, but moving more into devices that actually can support people who have healthcare conditions or may have healthcare concerns and that kind of thing, which I think is cool. Um, and it's, it's good to see, you know, these big companies making these kinds of moves that actually could make a difference to some people and, but also can translate then into the healthcare system and for healthcare professionals too, seeing that information, you know, it's, it's an, it's another data point to be able to make decisions on and, and see a, a better picture. And I think that's cool. Which has gone way past your point of should they be using the word monthly cycle? But <laughs> no, no, I, I, I just, I, as I say, no, thank you for that. I, I just think, um, I think language is important, and it was, a, it was a genu- it was a genuine question um, that mm-hmm. I want to learn what the best ways mm-hmm. are to describe certain things, and I know that um, mm-hmm. we we do exist currently in a world where the sensitivity around language can lead to (laughs) quite devastating circumstances for some people, um, Mm. for things that perhaps aren't intentional. And I think, um, whilst there is a, you know, very, very sensitive end of that and a very, well, whatever you think of it, that end of that, there's also an area in the middle where it is forcing people to be just a bit more, uh, not conservative, that's the wrong word, like contemplative or they think about language more. And I think that's, that's a nice thing. That's a good thing Mm. because things are received in the correct way, et cetera. Um, Joel, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, yeah. Two things that uh, stood out to me with this um, particular technological, um, you know, product, I think it's, um, it's fascinating the, what they've done. Um, they're based out in Paris, which I think is interesting. Uh, so maybe, maybe there needs to be kind of like a summit event mm-hmm. out in Paris to kind of <laughs> connect some of these, uh, some of these guys, but they, but they're looking to collaborate with medical professionals to understand the best use cases for their technology. I think that should be commended that, you know, companies that have technology like this and are saying, mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, like, like, let's, let's find ways to, you know, connect with clinicians and see are there other, other useful ways that this can, um, can, can really help. Uh, for us to either, you know, better screen for um, certain conditions, uh, and and you know what it mentioned uh, in the article about, um, you know, that they are actually studying how the device can be used to non-invasively detect um, bladder and ovarian cancer re- relapse, which I find fascinating. And I've got mm. a few, you know, patients that I've seen with you know bladder cancer, and sometimes you know they they may well have microscopic hematuria or to translate that, you know, small levels of blood in the urine that you can't detect with the eye and if they've got a device in their toilet that they go for a pee and it it picks up that and sends a Mm. message to their phone and says actually there's small amounts of blood in the urine we suggest you go and see your gp that's great that person therefore um you know is able to seek earlier uh review from a clinician and potentially have an earlier diagnosis um of of uh you know bladder cancer or, or in the case of re- relapse and if that if that you know if that gets um demonstrated that that's fantastic to know that we can it's devastating to have situations where people present late because the earliest symptoms mm. um you know just you know just aren't discernible and so this is fantastic to see technology um like this and and, and use, use cases the other use case that you know, I, I thought was interesting as well is um pick, being able to pick up chronic kidney disease um earlier because again 
to diagnose chronic kidney disease, you know, requires you to go into the GP. Often you get a blood test and, um, you know, does your, your quote unquote user knees and it is able to, to look at your glomerular filtration rate, um, look at your creatinine and these really, um, you know, these variables that, Oftentimes, people don't have very early symptoms when you develop, um, you know, chronic kidney disease. It's size. Uh, it's it's one of these vague symptoms like maybe fatigue. If you get to the stage where it's really, really sort of um, quite marked disease, um, then then sometimes it, you know you can rely on patients presenting with with uh, with symptoms. But oftentimes, it's fairly silent. And so again, if you've got a device that somehow is able to detect that actually there's some abnormality in those levels, go and seek a GP to have a blood test, and you potentially again find people, um, you know, you know, kidney disease, chronic kidney disease being picked up earlier, and and, uh, and treatment and investigations done accordingly. So, I mean, yeah, you know, it's it sounds like a crazy idea when you think of it. You know, why would anyone want to have a device in their toilet? But it, it fits into this idea of personalized care that you can just be in your home. Mm. You've got devices in your home that are you know helping to to de- to discern in a in a sort of non-intrusive way you just go to the toilet it's not like as if you have to pee into something you use the toilet like you would and the device is there and it's able to do some detection work and and give you a heads up clinically as to what might be going on that would be worth to investigate with your doctor and i think for that reason a plus 10 out of 10 for them yeah, and do you know what? I was a bit glib about this at the start, but do you know, I was, I was thinking then, like, why have I seen that in a film? And I can picture the film, I just can't remember what it what it was, but a guy goes to the toilet, urinates on the toilet bowl, and then all of a sudden this this screen above the toilet says, you need to eat more X because your potassium's low. Eat a banana because your potassium's low. Something like that, right? Um, why is that in a film? that looks about futurism that has a view of what the future might be it's because that is the perfect workflow for health optimization because it doesn't interrupt anything you're not peeing into a cup and dipping a stick and putting the stick somewhere that analyze it like it's none of that pee in the bowl get told what to do there's absolutely no friction to that whatsoever so actually when you think about this this is as you say a plus 10 out of 10 because really even when you consider what we what we'd have to do now with in into a into a tube that you dip the stick and then you the stick then has to be blah 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 like you're literally talking about that exact workflow that you've seen in a pretend thing illustrating what we think the future might be because it's so simple to do it this way like this is a step closer to that and and it pretty much is that to be perfectly honest you you might have to swap the cartridges which is your unpleasant task perhaps a little bit um but beyond that, like, realistically, this is glorious. And you think about, yeah, you, you've painted the pictures there about, okay, if you've had bladder cancer in the past and you've, you've gone into remission or whatever, you, you'd have that for peace of mind. And how much are you going to pay for peace of mind? Well, actually, B2C model here, like, and then you prove it. And then you prove it B2C, and then all of a sudden it becomes, uh, it becomes cost-effective, and then it gets bought at a, a, a more national level, perhaps, and then it's reimbursed. and then it's the benefit to everybody and all these so like yeah good discussion man because i can yeah it's the perfect workflow it's been a pleasure thank you guys uh, joel it's been absolutely delight having you on thank you so much for joining us um we covered a lot of ground there collaboration solving problems junior doctor stuff ai 
been super interesting. Anyway, before we let you go, Joel, um, 2023, what are you looking forward to? What's going on for what's going on for Dr. Joel Brown in 2023? Man, uh, well, I will say uh, categorically, I'm looking forward to more Sumex collaborations coming down to um, some of the Google Cloud events uh, and whatever else. Oh, loving all these and, plugs, uh, man. This is glorious. <laughs> yeah, just being real. Just being real. Looking forward to that. Um, I, I, I know I would love to. Um, I hope that we're doing Malta again or whenever the next um, event is in November because I'm like, I love mm-hmm. it so much. Oh. Actually, I'm like, I want to be there again. So still that happening. It, it, it may or may not be happening. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see we'll see what happens um other than that just just taking each day as it comes i'm really being super conscious about my own health at the moment um uh you know i can happily admit nice. that i'm uh well i say happily i'll admit that i'm overweight and i'm working really hard on it so that's uh that's a really important goal for me this year to yeah to practice what i preach and it's been uh it's really been good uh i've already lost some weight and i'll just keep going awesome. nice awesome well as i say it's been a pleasure having you on. We're looking forward to having you back. I know you're booked in for a couple more of these in the, in the next few weeks. Um, so yeah, always great to have a practicing clinician that actually knows what they're talking about, actually uses tech, works in a tech startup as well. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. If anybody listening wants to grab any of the links to any of the stories we have talked about today, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com, sign up to the newsletter. You will get the news in your inbox every single week. Um, thank you so much, guys. We will see you all next week. <laughs>